and go to the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 1 this morning. I know that um, over the last couple of weeks I said that we would probably, and I fully intended to return to Matthew, and I thought we were, and if you're surprised, so am I. Um, but I did read through Matthew throughout the week, uh, a few times through chapters 20 down to 23, 24, for whatever reason, I did not have any piece about a sermon outline in any any parts of that area. And as I look through that text there in Matthew on Monday, Tuesday, and so forth, there was verses in there that brought us back, it brought me back to the book of Philippians. And I, I believe that's where the Lord wants us to be. Otherwise, I wouldn't be preaching from Philippians this morning. And just for the record, I generally uh, do not preach through a book of the Bible, starting with the last chapter. Um, as we did over the last couple of weeks, but here we are. I mean, here we are. Uh, we're going to begin reading here in a moment with verse 19 in chapter 1. But before, before that, I'd like to give you some background um, leading up to this specific passage there in, in verse number 19. So there's a, there's a handful of truths in here uh, that we're going to talk about this morning. Um, this, of course, is the Apostle Paul, and he's writing to the church at Philippi, uh, there in Macedonia, and then if you could see on the map here, I got you can see um, Philippi all the way up there um, in modern-day Greece, Macedonia over there, um, across the way from Asia Minor or modern-day uh, modern-day Turkey, right there on the northern part of the Aegean Sea. That's uh, that's where Philippi is, and of course Paul has traveled across there and he's been to Philippi a few times up at this point, uh, but he's not writing from Philippi to the church at Philippi. He's writing from Rome. He's actually in prison. Um, writing this letter to them, encouraging them to stay the course, if you will. And in the first 18 verses of this letter, he highlights the fact that his bonds, because he's there in prison, his confinement, his bonds are creating or is creating boldness in other people. It's creating boldness in other people to preach the gospel. And this Paul is pleased with. Uh, look at verse number 12. He said, he, he said that the things which happen unto me have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel. That includes more than his confinement there. The things that are happening to Paul, he's saying it's all to, put, to, to make the gospel go forward. And he concludes in verse 18 in so many words with however the gospel gets out, however people hear about Jesus, Christ is preached, and I am happy about that. He says, I therein do rejoice, yea, and will rejoice. Now, we could jump right into an application by asking the question this morning, do our bonds create boldness in other people? Do our bonds create boldness in other believers? Do, does the way we go through the struggles of this life encourage other believers, even give them boldness? But I realize that asking this kind of question so soon in, in the sermon might be getting ahead of myself, and we need to read some more Bible. We need to, read, we need to pray and speak to the Lord this morning. In any case, it's evident in this text here that the boldness in others created by Paul's bonds could not be sourced in Paul's confinement if he himself were not bold, right? I mean, he has to be bold in those confinements to encourage other people. He has to be standing in the faith. In, in the faith. So in the midst of, of torture for Paul, in the midst of potential death, Paul in a Roman prison He's still making a conscious decision to endure. He's making a conscious decision to keep the faith. Later in Paul's life, when he was in prison yet again, uh, he wrote in 2 Timothy 4, 6, I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought 
a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. And here, as he writes to encourage the Philippian church, uh, the jailer, his family, and many others, Paul is saying that no matter what, no matter what comes my way, even as I sit here in prison, I will keep the faith. Why? For to me to live is Christ. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. And because I cannot um, simply find a greater title for today's message, that's going to be our title. For to me to live is Christ. For me to live is Christ. And with that's, that said, let's take our Bibles and look there at Philippians chapter 1 and look at verse number 19, and we'll read to the end of the chapter. Please stand in the, in the honor of God's Word, if you're able. Um, but verse number 19 <clears throat> says, For I know that this shall turn to my salvation through your prayer and, and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Verse 20 says, According to my earnest expectation and my hope that in nothing... I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness, as always, so now also, Christ shall be magnified of my body, whether it be by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I live in the flesh, this is the fruit of my labor. Yet what I shall choose, I wot or I know not. For I am in a strait betwixt two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. And having this confidence, I know that I shall abide and continue with you for, uh, continue with you all for your furtherance and joy and of faith, that your rejoicing may be more abundant, abundant in Jesus Christ for me by my coming to you again. Verse twenty-seven. Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that ye stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, and in nothing terrified by your adversaries, which is to them an an evident token of perdition, but to you of salvation and that of God. For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which ye saw in me, and now here to be in me. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you again for allowing us to be in your house this morning. We thank you for um, all that we do here today, Lord. We thank you for um, allowing us to, to worship you. We thank you for Sunday school. We thank you for um, Lisa across the way here. We thank you for those in the nursery, Lord. Lord, all that we do, Lord, help us to, help us to glorify you. Help us to, um, for a moment here, Lord, for a number of minutes, Lord, ignore the world and just focus completely on you. Uh, help us to forget about uh, what's on the agenda, even for the rest of the day and maybe the rest of the week, Lord. Forget about how our, how bad or good our morning was or how bad or go- uh, good Saturday or the rest of the week was, Lord. Help us to just put all that away and surrender it to you. Give it to you, Lord, and to see you high and lifted up today. Lord, help us to, to worship you. Lord, cleanse, cleanse us as we come to you this morning. Help us to magnify your name, as Paul says, Lord. Help us to, to draw closer to you this morning. Lord, we love you with all our hearts, Lord. Help us to see you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Please please be seated. I want to say that verse 20 again tells us, Paul writes there again in verse 20, according to my earnest expectation and my hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life, or by death. So our first takeaway, right, right in, in the text this morning, our first principle of encouragement 
from the Lord is because of what Jesus has done for us, like the Apostle Paul, we are to magnify Christ. We are to magnify. He says that in nothing I shall be unshamed, but that with all boldness as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified. Not might, not I hope so, shall be. Shall be magnified. So, you know, we are no stranger to that word magnify. We all know we've, we've as, as children, we've, we probably use magnifying glasses to look at things closer or, or other things we shouldn't have been doing with magnifying glasses. Um, but we know what they are. Uh, we know that it's used to make things bigger or to enlarge something. And here in the text, we see that we are to magnify Christ with all that we are. Now, this, of course, the magnification of Christ, that is, cannot be done if we do not know Jesus. Right? We have to know Him. We have to know Him to magnify Him. I mean, just practically speaking, we cannot magnify something when we don't know where that certain something is. If you ever, you ever used a telescope, I mean, I remember as a, as a teenager and maybe even um, when, my, my, when my children were teenagers, we had this, I don't know, this $5 um, telescope that we put in the living room and the moon, or in the, in the window in the living room, and the moon was like right there. But I look into the telescope, I can't find the moon. Right? I mean, you got to look all over the place, and so it's kind of difficult to see that. Well, the same thing is true spiritually speaking. We need to know where He is. We need to know who He is. And if you have any desire this morning to magnify Jesus Christ, that desire is given to you by the Holy Spirit, but you must know Him to do so. You must have a personal relationship with Him. There must have been a time in your life when you were born again into His family, when you realized that you were dead in your trespasses, that you, had, that you have deeply offended your perfect creator through rebellion, and by grace, through faith, you received the payment for your sin. And of course, that payment is the Lord Jesus Christ. And he did so on the cross of Calvary. Jesus paid it all, all of it. He did all the work. We didn't do any of the work. He did all the work. All we must do is receive that payment. And tr- friends, that's the greatest truth ever told. <clears throat> We, if you told that story to somebody who's never heard the gospel, many times, and oftentimes, I get, one of the responses I get is, well, if that were true, that would be pretty awesome. Well, it is true. You don't have to do anything. God is, is coming down. Salvation is not us climbing a mountain of morals and ethics in order to please God or to be accepted by God. It's, again, God coming down to us in the person of Christ to save us, to become our sin. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, For by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. God did it all, not of works, lest any man should boast. So magnification begins with salvation. But it also, as we see in the text here and more closely to the text, it cannot be done if we are ashamed of Jesus Christ. It cannot be done. You cannot magnify Christ if you're ashamed of Jesus Christ. Notice Paul's words again. They're in verse number 20. He says, according to my earnest expectation and my hope, that in nothing, not in some things, not in most things, or not in no things, but in nothing, I shall be ashamed. Now, I believe that's a direct reference to the bonds, to the confinement that he's in. I'm not ashamed of this confinement. I'm not ashamed of being all these these false rap sheets, if you will, that's on my name because of the cause of Christ. I'm not ashamed of these things. Nothing about me, nothing about Christ in me, Paul says, will I be ashamed of. Simply put, I think we can say that Paul is saying, very clearly here, I will not be ashamed of Jesus Christ. It is not going to happen. 
I will not leave this world ashamed of Christ. In fact, I will magnify Christ instead. And he says again that that's my earnest expectation and my hope. Now, the Bible word for hope is not the way we use it today in the English language, not generally anyway, unless it's used in a biblical mindset. In other words, there's something vastly different between these two sayings, between my hope is in Jesus Christ or I hope to make it to work on time. (laughs) Those are two different kinds of hopes. There are two different kinds of things, and Paul earnestly here expects himself with the biblical hope to never be ashamed of Jesus Christ. Now, for the record, I want to point out, we might look at this as maybe maybe Paul's being boastful. Maybe he's putting a lot of stock in what he can do. Well, I don't think this is a pull-yourself-up-by-your-bootstraps kind of philosophy here as much as it is an I-can-do-all-things-through-Christ-which-strengthens-me kind of philosophy. This is not an independent man mustering up the strength to persevere. No, this is a dependent man who surrenders his strength to God. For when I am weak, then I am strong, Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 12. Remember again, Paul is in bonds here, and he's saying, I will not be ashamed. And in prison, he is essentially saying, as he stands before those who may or may not torture him, he's saying that while I am broken and surrendered to Jesus, I will not break or surrender to any other man. It's not going to happen. I will not be ashamed. And even to the Christians who lived in the city nearby where he was imprisoned, there in Rome, Romans 1.16 says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God, the power of God unto salvation. And Paul continues here by writing here in the text here in Philippians chapter 1, with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. I like putting things in a simple concept here. He is saying, with all boldness, Christ shall be magnified. With all boldness, Christ shall be magnified. Now, going back to our simple definition, how do we magnify Jesus? How do we magnify God? We cannot make God bigger, of course. The only way to make to magnify God, I mean, think about this. We don't have a spiritual magnifying glass, right? We don't know, we don't know how to make God physically bigger. God, you cannot change his size. There's only one way. And that's to get closer to him. If I were to magnify my wife, I can get a little closer to her. And she's, well, I don't want to say she's larger, but I'm closer to her. Um, So that's how we magnify God. Uh, We draw close to him. I'm going to pay for that one, I tell you. (laughs) So we need to magnify Christ. And the only way to do that is to draw close to Jesus Christ. And thankfully, the Bible states in James 4.8, if we draw nigh to God, what does he do to us? Draw nigh to us. See, if we draw near to God, we have a Bible verse that says, I will draw near to you from God himself. That's, that's an amazing concept, by the way. Because many times we're, we're running from God, but just a little drawing, God says, well, well I'll draw too. You want to step closer to me? Oh, I'll, I'll step closer to you. What a, what a promise from our Creator. And with all boldness, Paul is saying, I'm going to draw nigh to God because God's going to draw nigh to me. And, and by the way, the first step of magnifying Jesus Christ is getting a little closer to Him. It's drawing yourself to Jesus Christ. We must seek Him with our whole heart. There are, there are hundreds of passages that talk about how we should seek Christ and seek God with our whole heart. Jeremiah 29, 13 says, Ye shall seek me and find me when ye shall search for me with all your heart. 
The problem is we often do not search for God with all our heart. We're usually distracted. I'm I'm guilty all the time. Uh, We must put away those distractions and seek God with our whole heart. Turn the television off. Turn turn the the radio off. Open our Bible and seek God. Seek God. And may I add that we are to boldly seek God. We are to boldly seek His face. We are to boldly draw nigh unto God. And we are to boldly magnify Christ in life and in death. In death. You might wonder how, how do we how do we magnify Christ in death? Well, there's there's a number, number of ways we can understand that. But I think the easiest way to define what it means to magnify Christ in death is to live for Christ now and to finish well. To finish the course, to fight the good fight of faith like Paul talks about here. To keep that faith all the way to the end. To say, I will not be ashamed and mean it every single day. But notice that when we magnify Christ in our life, according to this text here, when God, when God draws near to us because we draw near to Him, He is not just magnified in us, but He's magnified to all those around us. I mean, if my wife were walking together and we were moving closer to Christ, if I'm trying to lead and get closer to Christ, she's there with me. And by the way, if I draw near to Christ and she's near with me, God is stepping closer, not just to me, but to her. Through this text here, we see that my magnification, that your magnification of Christ, not only draws God closer to me, but it can also to those believers that we're bringing along with us. Look at verses 21 through 26 again. Paul says, For me, or for to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I live in the flesh, this is the fruit of my labor, yet what I shall choose I want not, for I am in a strait betwixt two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you, and having this confidence, I know that I shall abide and continue with you all for your furtherance and joy of faith, that your rejoicing may be more abundant in Jesus Christ for me by the coming, by my coming to you again. Again, so for, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain, and drawing those people to me, we can, we can see in the texture that part of living for Christ was doing, was doing so for the benefit of others around you. And I think we can sum this up really, really quickly um, with um, abide for the cause of Christ. We already talked about magnify Christ, but moving on to abide for the cause of Christ. You and I are to abide for the cause of Christ in others, not just in self. That's number one, of course, abiding for Christ. We must be completely surrendered to God and draw close to God ourselves, but we do so also, at least partly so, for the cause of Christ in other people. We're not in this alone. We are to abide for the cause of Christ in others. God didn't only inspire Paul to write that he will boldly magnify Christ in life and death, but to also do his best to magnify Christ to and in others, to make Jesus big in other people. Well, you could stay here for a long time. Abide, of course, means to dwell. It means to continue. So an easy deduction from the text is that because Christ is our all, even our life, we are to have some of the same desires that Paul has here. And what is his desire? He has a, a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. So as we, as we draw closer to Christ on our own, we must, before we can impact other people, we must also come to a point 
where you and I can say before God and before man honestly that we can say what Paul says here in verse number 21. Look at verse 21 again. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. I know that many times we look at these passages and if you were to um, just search in books and, and YouTube and videos and sermons, one might, one might make the argument that this, that, that this verse is preached to too much, too often. Well, how do you get too much from that? How can we exhaust what that means there in verse 21? For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Actually, there's only one way to wear that verse out. Is if we were doing that verse. That's the only way to wear that verse out. If That's not even possible anyway. Can we say, honestly, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain? We must come to that point, I think. And if you really think about it, it's truly death to self and life in Christ. To live is Christ, Paul says, and to die is gain. How often do we look at death as gaining something? But this is what the Holy Spirit is inspiring Paul to write. To live is Christ and to die is gain. But at the same time, uh, at the time of this writing, rather, Paul was obviously still alive. He's writing. He's writing this. And the fruit of his labor that he speaks of here in that next verse there, verse number 22, but if I live in the flesh, this is the fruit of my labor. What is this? So this, 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 is, is his bondage there in, in, um, in, in prison there. It's all the things that he's going with, all the things that happen unto him for the furtherance of the gospel. He says, if I live in the flesh, these things are the fruit of my labor. Yet what shall I choose I want not? Verse 25 says, I know that I shall abide and continue with you all for your furtherance and joy in the faith. So what's the furtherance of his God? Or what's the the impact of him remaining in the flesh, the fruit of his labor, if you will? The furtherance of their faith. Again, abiding for the cause of Christ in other people. Paul had a great desire. He had a great desire to depart and be with Christ. But at the same time, he recognized the spiritual benefits of, of his earthly labor, and he knew that his apostolic mission was not complete. He had things to do. He needed to stay where he was. God called him to stay where he was. His life on planet Earth had a purpose, and that purpose was the cause of Christ. And friends, we are in the same category as Paul. I know he's an apostle. I know uh, there's many things that are different, but this is not one of them. We have a purpose on this planet, and that purpose is for the cause of Christ. Every single one of us are called to do more. We're all called to do more. We have purpose in Christ. We are to abide for the cause of Christ. You know, we, we quote that verse there in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, but verse 10 tells us that we are actually created to fulfill that purpose. We are created in Christ Jesus as new creatures to serve out the cause of Christ in this planet. The question, I think, that comes to mind is kind of sourced here in verses 23 and 24. In summary, Paul says that, yes, I have a desire to depart. Yes, I want to be with Jesus. Of course, I, have a be, I want to be with the Lord. But to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. Is more needful for you. Now, this verse... As, as we kind of unfold this a little bit, this verse has nothing to do with the value of any one person. And what I mean by that, I, I, don't, wanna, I, I don't think it comes across as, like, if it's, it's not asking the question, is our abiding needful for others or not? 
It's not, a, it's, not, it's not talking about that. No value. Our value is in the person of Christ. This passage does have to do with Paul fulfilling his apostolic purpose, and therefore it has an application to us, best formed in the question, are we fulfilling our purpose? So the, the, the confusion I want to make less confusing uh, is being needful for others. It's not talking about your quality and who you are. We, we, are, we are all important to Jesus Christ, but it's talking about our purpose. Is our purpose, how we live out our lives, needful for others? Is our abiding needful to others? Are we abiding for the cause of Christ in other people? Now, I know this next sentence sounds hard, or the next question, rather, but does your existence, this is hard for me, I, I understand it, but does, does my existence benefit the cause of Christ for somebody else? That, to me, speaks volumes. Does my existence benefit the cause of Christ in other people? My wife, my spouse, or, or, or that's the same person, but my children, whatever. Again, this is not a reference to your individual value. This is akin to asking if you are a soldier, are you a productive soldier? If you are a teacher, are you a productive teacher? If you are a plumber or a mechanic or whatever, whatever you are, are you an asset to those around you? Maybe, maybe this way, do you make a difference in the area that you were trained to make a difference in? Because are we making an, a difference in the area that we are created to be in to serve God's purpose? And as a Christian who has been given the life and the greatest purpose to live for, which is, of course, our Savior, do we further that purpose in other people? Do we further the purpose of Christ in other people? Are you a light that shines into the darkness? Or are you an ambassador, as Paul gets to here in a moment? Are, you, are we ambassadors for Christ? Are we good ambassadors? Do we represent Jesus? You know, the last book in the, in the New Testament, right before the book of Revelation, the book of Jude, it states that we are to keep ourselves in the love of God, to look for the return of God, uh, and whether it's in compassion or fear, Jude says we need to make a difference. Last book, right before the book of Revelation, you need to make a difference. Whether, whether you love them, whether you, whether you teach boldly to them, make a difference. Somehow find a way to make an honorable difference in this world. And Paul was confident that his abiding, his influence, his attitude, his behavior, his entire life, his career, all of it together was necessary to those around him. That's what that word needful means. It was necessary for them to have him in their lives. And he was confident in this. He was confident. Fully persuaded in verse 25, Paul says, Having this confidence, I know that I shall abide and continue with you all for your furtherance and joy of faith. I don't think Paul was telling them that he was confident that he knew he would be around them, but that as long as he was around them, he was confident that he would be so for the furtherance of their faith. He was confident that he could make a difference. How could he be so confident, you might ask? How could one man be so confident in Christ or in, in, in just in other people? Well, he really kind of already told us in verse number 6 of chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. Paul writes there, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. So where is Paul's confidence placed? In people or in Christ? In Christ. 
I'm confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Paul is confident in the God who started a work in us. And by application, if you really, if you really break this verse down and understand it, this verse gives us hope for wayward believers. It gives us hope in our relationships with other believers. It gives us hope even within ourselves. In other words, my confidence cannot be rooted in my flesh. My confidence cannot be rooted even in my response to the Spirit's work in my life. My confidence is rooted in He which hath begun a good work in me. So my confidence is not in you per se, and your confidence is not in me, but in Christ in you. And your confidence is in Christ in me. And friends, we need a revival of this kind of confidence today. We need men and women today to stand up and say, I will magnify Christ. To say, as long as I live, I will continue for the cause of Christ in myself and in the life of others. I will be a faithful Christian. I will be a faithful father, a faithful mother, a faithful son, daughter, brother, sister, what have you. We need people to stand up and say, I will boldly abide for the cause of Christ. Yes, we are to look for the Lord's return. Yes, we are to expect these vile bodies to be fashioned like unto His glorious body every single day. But while we're here, we are to abide for the cause of Christ in other people. You know, young people often go through a rebellious stage in life. Maybe I'm the only one. But young people often go through a rebellious stage in life, and they want to, they want to break away from the cultural norms and not fit the mold that those around them expect them to fit in. Well, if you want to be a rebel today, if you want to break away from this world's expectations and be different, be a Christian. Be a Christian. Be a bold Christian. Be a confident Christian. Rebels for Jesus. I don't know. We can start something. I don't know. <laughs> Proverbs 14.26 says, In the fear of the Lord is strong confidence. And friends, we need confident Believers today, confident Christians, people to stand up for God and know that God is with them and not back down. Stand up for God, confident that God will continue to do a work in us and confident that God will continue to do a work in other people. That's what Paul started this chapter off with. He's confident that he that which begun a good work is not going to quit. He's going to keep right on going on. You know, God is still able. He's still able. And because he is able, we are. We can. Because he is able, we can be able. We can make a difference. You know, God did not inspire the Bible writers to pen such tall orders, if you will, all throughout the text, if he didn't plan on enabling us to accomplish those tall orders. Can you imagine for a moment if every Christian got a hold of just the confidence in Christ that we're talking about here this morning? If every Christian on planet Earth got a hold of that confidence and lived a confident Christian life. Wow. If every Christian determined to be boldly, to boldly abide for the cause of and furtherance of Jesus Christ in other people, can you imagine? Can you imagine? What if, what if only half the Christians experienced that? What if it were only us? What if it were only you who experienced that confidence, that revival of confidence? What what if it were only you? You were the only person that you knew of 
that had a confident Christianity, what would it look like? What did it look like for Paul? I think he made a difference. May our earnest expectation and hope truly be to magnify Jesus Christ in all that we are, and may our abiding here on earth make a difference for the cause of Christ and other people. It really makes a difference. It really can make a difference. He really means something to us. He should. If only for the same reason that Paul wrote here in verse 26, one of the, one of the reasons, that your rejoicing may be more abundant in Jesus Christ for me by coming to you again. I mean, think about that. You, you ran into somebody and you were living that bold Christian life that you were surrendered to Christ and doing all things through Christ and living that bold life through Him, and you made an impact on that person, and then you come back or you hear about that, and you, you hear that that person's life is turned around. You hear about how that person rejoices. I mean, what great honor that is to God. What great glory that is. We are to abide for the cause of Christ and others so that their rejoicing may be more abundant in Jesus Christ to cause somebody else to rejoice in God. What a, what a pleasure. And as rich as the words are from this apostle, he continues to encourage here the beloved Philippian church to press on even in the face of opposition. Look at verse 27. He says, Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that ye stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, Striving together for the faith of the gospel. Now notice that last phrase again. Striving together for the faith of the gospel. You know, it's directly translated. It means to strive or to wrestle. Excuse me, it means to labor together for a common goal. So we are to strive together for Christ. This is us. We are to strive together for Christ. This is Paul writing to a church telling them to strive together. Remember we talked about a couple weeks ago about those two ladies that were, that were bickering back and forth, and Paul says, stop bickering, give it to the Lord, and strive together. We are to strive together for Christ. So, so far in our text here, Paul has written about how he will magnify Christ, and then about how he will abide for the cause of Christ and others, and now it seems as if he intends to bring both of those together, himself and the people there, for that same cause. Now that phrase, let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, is the introductory concept in this epistle of a heavenly citizenship that we talked about a couple weeks ago that he visits again there in, in, in chapter 3. Uh, verse 20 of Philippians 3, you probably remember this from a couple weeks ago, Paul wrote, For our conversation is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, Philippians 3.20. So again, we touched on that a couple weeks ago, but in summary, we have we, you and I, if who, those who are believers, we have a heavenly citizenship, and the administration of that citizenship, or how we operate as citizens, as Paul put it here, it should be becoming of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are to be good citizens of Christ. Verse 21, or verse 27 rather, back in chapter 1, it begins, in my mind, it begins there. Look at that verse there again. Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that ye stand fast in one spirit. It's collective there. So it begins with an individual focus, and it transitions to a collective focus. In other words, we are to be good citizens at the individual level so that we can make a difference at the collective level, at the church level. 
And in the context of our application this morning, we are to magnify Christ and do our part for the furtherance of faith in others so that collectively we can strive together for an even greater impact in this world. I mean, look again at Paul's words. We are to stand fast in one spirit and with one mind. One spirit with one mind. You know, we cannot do this if we are magnifying something other than Christ. Right? If we, if we want to magnify self, we're not going to strive together with somebody who is magnifying Christ. We cannot do it if we're magnifying something other than Christ. And we cannot do this either if we have no interest in the furtherance of faith in other people. We can't strive together. I can't strive with somebody if I do not care about their growth, their personal walk with the Lord. We need to have one mind and one spirit striving together in one faith. And quite honestly, there is no greater cause then you and I should strive together in. And this is true because as Christians, we don't just strive for a cause, we strive for Christ, a person. It's a person. But this is the greatest thing we do every week. Maybe a surprise to you. But this is the greatest thing. You are worshiping Jesus Christ together. You are following a command there in Hebrews chapter 10 and other places. This is coming together, striving together, worshiping Jesus Christ. God is pleased with this. You know without a doubt God is pleased with this. this should, that, should, that in itself should be a, a draw to come here more often to get together with believers, whether it's sitting around a coffee table talking about Jesus or, or praying together. God loves those coming together. Again, there's no greater cause to strive than what we are striving for, and that's true because we strive for the person of Jesus Christ. Now, I understand that there are many things that we want or we should or even, uh, or even desire or should or whatever. How do you want to look at that? Strive for. There are many other things that we can strive for in this world, whether it's your country, whether it's patriotism, your family. I get all those things. But never let those things keep you from striving with God's people for the cause of Christ. This is the greatest cause. You know, there are so many things. Notice that word together there. Go back to the verse 27. Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that ye stand fast in one spirit, unity, with one mind, unity, striving together, unity. It's all about striving together. It's no surprise that there are so many things in this world that are driving wedges between people, right? You look at the news. You can just go to work or go to school. There are so many things that are separating people, everybody being um, different and all focusing on, those, on that diversity and all that, all that craziness that's going on in the world right here. But Paul is saying we need to strive together. Again, there are so many wedges between people, even Christians, because of faulty worldviews or sports teams, and maybe that's ingested a little bit, but there's so much that competes for our commitment to Christ. Don't let it take that place. Don't let it take that cause from you. Again, it's no surprise that these things keep coming in and keep us from striving together. It's no surprise. The Bible tells us in 1 Peter 5, 8, be sober be vigilant, because your adversary the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. You know, the devil doesn't want us to strive together. He doesn't want this at all. He opposes this. He hates this. That's why Peter wrote that. Be sober, be vigilant. There is an enemy out there, and he doesn't want this. 
And he wants to keep you from this. He wants to keep you from prayer, from Bible reading, from worshiping. The devil doesn't want us striving together for Christ because he wants us apart and alone from each other so it's easier for him to walk about and take that one from the herd, if you will. But just like Paul here wrote in verse 20, even even with that said, even with that opposing enemy out there, look at verse 20, in nothing uh, I shall be ashamed. And here in this verse here he says, in nothing terrified by your adversaries there in verse 28. In nothing terrified by your adversaries, which is to them an evident token of perdition, but to you of salvation and that of God. So in nothing, he says, I will be ashamed, and in nothing will I be terrified of. Why? For again, it is given unto you, look at verse 29, for unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake. It's part of the plan. The opposition, because of the presence of sin in this world, which, by the way, we brought in, but it's part of the plan to get us, to draw us back to Christ. You cannot live. You cannot live a godly life in an ungodly world and think everything is going to be okay all the time. It's not going to happen. In Paul's very last letter to Timothy, before we think he was martyred. He said, all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. And here back in verse 30, he says, having the same conflict which ye saw in me and now here to be in me. So in other words, I want to put out that Paul fought for the cause of Christ. The Philippians fought for the cause of Christ. Timothy fought for the cause of Christ. And from the text, we see that all who live godly are really fighting for the cause of Christ. They're striving together in Christ. If I can kind of bring this kind of to a close this morning, I want to say it's not time for Christians to lay our weapons down. It's just not time. In fact, it's never been a time for us to lay our weapons down. If anything, in the era in which we live, it's time to pick them back up and strive together for the cause of Christ. We are to put on the whole armor of God, Ephesians 6 tells us, and it's time today to put our helmet of salvation on straight, if you will, to sense down our shield of faith and start striving together with prayer and the sword of the Spirit. It's time to pick those weapons up and go back to work in the Spirit, to strive together for the cause of Christ. This is part of what it means to completely live for Christ. We are to strive together for Him. We are to abide for the cause of Christ by doing what we can to further each other's faith. And we, and with our entire existence, all that we are, we are to magnify Jesus Christ in life and in death. So that we too, with conviction, with conviction and honesty, can say before God and before man, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. I cannot raise my hand for that. But there needs to be times when I do. I can't do it right now, but I need to. And we all need to. We must come to that for to me to live as Christ. Paul wrote that, inspired by the Holy Spirit of God, so we know that it's true. For Paul to live was Christ and to die is gain. He had the same Holy Spirit that you and I have. 
It's not unreachable. We can achieve it. Through Christ, we can achieve it. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. And let's, let's go to him in prayer.